0: Chapter 11 of the Empire of Russia This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga Ontario Canada The Empire of Russia from the remotest periods to the present time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott, Chapter 11, The Reign of Vasily, from 1480 to 1533, Alliance with Hungary, a traveler from Germany, treaty between Russia and Germany, embassage to Turkey, court etiquette, death of the Princess Sophia, death of Ivan, Advancement of Knowledge, Succession of Vassili, Attack upon the Horde, Rout of the Russians, The Grand Prince takes the title of Emperor, Turkish Envoy to Moscow, Efforts to arm Europe against the Turks, Death of the Emperor Maximilian, and Ascension of Charles V to the Empire of Germany, Death of Vassili. The retreat of the Tartars did not redound much to the glory of Ivan. The citizens of Moscow, in the midst of their rejoicings, were far from being satisfied with their sovereign. They thought that he had not exhibited that courage which characterizes grand souls, and that he had been signally wanting in that devotion which leads one to sacrifice himself for the good of his country. They lavished, however, their praises upon the clergy, especially upon Archbishop Vassian, whose letter to the Grand Prince was read and re-read throughout the kingdom with the greatest enthusiasm. This noble prelate, whose Christian heroism had saved his country, soon after fell sick and died, deplored by all Russia. Hungary was at this time governed by Matthias, son of the renowned Honeids, a prince equally renowned for his valour and his genius. Matthias, threatened by Poland, sent ambassadors to Russia to seek alliance with Ivan the Third. Eagerly, Russia accepted the proposition and entered into friendly connections with Hungary, which kingdom was then, in civilization, quite in advance of the Northern Empire. In the year 1486, an illustrious cavalier named Nicholas Popel visited Russia, taking a letter of introduction to the Grand Prince from Frederick III, Emperor of Germany. He had no particular mission, and was led only by motives of curiosity. "'I have seen,' said the traveller, "'all the Christian countries and all the kings,' and I wish also to see Russia and the Grand Prince. The lords at Moscow had no faith in these words, and were persuaded that he was a spy sent by their enemy, the King of Poland. Though they watched him narrowly, he was not incommoded, and left the kingdom after having satisfied his desire to see all that was remarkable. His report to the German emperor was such that, Two years after, he returned in the quality of an ambassador from Frederick III, with a letter to Ivan III, dated Ulm, December twenty-sixth, 1488. The nobles now received Popel with great cordiality. He said to them, After having left Russia, I went to find the Emperor and the Princes of Germany at Nuremberg i spent a long time giving them information respecting your country and the grand prince i corrected the false impression conceived by them that ivan the third was but the vassal of casimir king of poland that is impossible i said to them the monarch of moscow is much more powerful and much richer than the king of poland his estates are immense his people numerous his wisdom extraordinary. All the court listened to me with astonishment, and especially the Emperor himself, who often invited me to dine and pass hours with me conversing upon Russia. At length the Emperor, desiring to enter into an alliance with the Grand Prince, has sent me to the court of your Majesty as his ambassador. He then solicited, in the name of Frederick the Third, the hand of Ivan's daughter, Helen, for the nephew of the Emperor, Albert Margrave of Baden. The proposition for the marriage of the daughter of the Grand Prince with a mere Margrave was coldly received. Ivan, however, sent an ambassador to Germany with the following instructions. Should the Emperor ask if the Grand Prince will consent to the marriage of his daughter with the Margrave of Baden, reply that such an alliance is not worthy of the grandeur of the Russian monarch, brother of the ancient emperors of Greece, who, in establishing themselves at Constantinople, ceded the city of Rome to the Popes. Leave the Emperor, however, to see that there is some hope of success should he desire one of our princesses for his son, the King Maximilian. The Russian ambassador was received in Germany with the most flattering attentions, even being conducted to a seat upon the throne by the side of the emperor. It is said that Maximilian, who was then a widower, wished to marry Helen, the daughter of the Grand Prince. But he wished very naturally first to see her through the eyes of his ambassador and to ascertain the amount of her dowry to this request a polite refusal was returned how could one suppose writes the russian historian karamzin that an illustrious monarch and a princess his daughter could consent to the affront of submitting the princess to the judgment of a foreign minister who might declare her unworthy of his master. The pride of the Russian court was touched, and the Emperor's ambassador was informed, in very plain language, that the Grand Prince was not at all disposed to make a matter of merchandise of his daughter, that after her marriage the Grand Prince would present her with a dowry such as she should deem proportionate to the rank of the united pair and that, above all, should she marry Maximilian, she should not change her religion, but should always have residing with her chaplains of the Greek Church. Thus terminated the question of the marriage. A treaty, however, of alliance was formed between the two nations, which was signed at Moscow August sixteenth, 1490. In this treaty Ivan Third subscribes himself by the grace of god monarch of all the russias prince of vladimir moscow novgorod Pskov, ugaria vyatia perm and bulgaria we thus see what portion of the country was then deemed subject to his sway ivan the third continually occupied in extending consolidating and developing the resources of his vast empire could not but look with jealousy upon the encroachments of the Turks, who had already overrun all Greece, who had taken a large part of Hungary, and who were surging up the Danube in wave after wave of terrible invasion. Still, sound judgment taught him that the hour had not yet come for him to interpose, that it was his present policy to devote all his energies to the increase of Russian wealth and power. It was a matter of the first importance that Russia should enjoy the privileges of commerce with those cities of Greece now occupied by the Turks, to which Russia had access through the Dnieper and the Don, and partially through the vast floods of the Volga. But the Russian merchants were incessantly annoyed by the oppression of the lawless Turks the following letter from ivan the third to sultan bajazet the second gives one a very clear idea of the relations existing between the two countries at that time it is dated moscow august thirty first fourteen ninety two to bajazet sultan king of the princes of turkey sovereign of the earth and of the sea we ivan the third by the grace of god only true and hereditary monarch of all the russias and of the many other countries of the north and of the east behold that which we deem it our duty to write to your majesty we have never sent ambassadors to each other with friendly greetings nevertheless the russian merchants have traversed your estates in the exercise of traffic advantageous to both our empires Often they complain to me of the vexations they encounter from your magistrates, but I have kept silence. The last summer, the pasha of Azov forced them to dig a ditch, and to carry stones for the construction of the edifices of the city. More than this, they have compelled our merchants of Azov and of Kaffa to dispose of their merchandise for one-half their value. If any one of the merchants happens to fall sick, the magistrates place seals upon the goods of all, and if he dies, the state seizes all these goods and restores but half if he recover. No regard is paid to the clauses of a will. The Turkish magistrates recognizing no heirs but themselves to the property of the Russians— such glaring injustice has compelled me to forbid my merchants to engage in traffic in your country. From whence come these acts of violence? Formerly these merchants paid only the legal tax, and they were permitted to trade without annoyance. Are you aware of this, or not?" One word more, Mohammed, the second, your father, was a prince of grandeur and renown. He wished it is reported to send to us ambassadors proposing friendly relations. Providence frustrated the execution of this project. But why should we not now see the accomplishment of this plan? We await your response. The Russian ambassador received orders from Ivan Third to present his document to the Sultan, standing and not upon his knees, as was the custom of the Turkish court, he was not to yield precedence to the ambassador of any other nation, whatever, and was to address himself only to the Sultan and not to the Pashas. Pleshchev, the Russian envoy, obeyed his instructions to the letter, and by his haughty bearing excited the indignation of the Turkish nobles. The pasha of Constantinople received him with great politeness, loaded him with attentions, invited him to dine, and begged him to accept of a present of some rich dresses and a purse of ten thousand sequins. The haughty Russian declined the invitation to dine, returning the purse and the robes with the ungracious response. I have nothing to say to pasha's i have no need to wear their clothes neither have i any need of their money i wish only to speak to the sultan notwithstanding this arrogance badges at the second the sultan received pleshev politely and returned a conciliatory answer to the grand prince promising the redress of those grievances of which he complained The Turk was decidedly more civilized than the Christian. He wrote to Mengli Gairi, the Pasha of the Crimea, where most of these annoyances had occurred. The monarch of Russia, with whom I desire to live in friendly relations, has sent to me a clown. I cannot consequently allow any of my people to accompany him back to Russia, lest they should find him offensive respected as i am from the east to the west i blush in being exposed to such an affront it is in consequence my wish that my son the sultan of kaffa should correspond directly with the grand prince of moscow with a sense of delicacy as attractive as it is rare bajazat the second refrained from complaining of the boorishness of the russian envoy but wrote to the Grand Prince, Ivan the Third in the following courteous terms. You have sent, in the sincerity of your soul, one of your lords to the threshold of my palace. He has seen me and has handed me your letter, which I have pressed to my heart, since you have expressed a desire to become my friend. Let your ambassadors and your merchants no longer fear to frequent our country, They have only to come to certify to the veracity of all which your envoy will report to you from us may god grant him a prosperous journey and a grace to convey to you our profound salutation to you and to your friends for those whom you love are equally dear to us in the whole of this transaction the turkish court appears far superior to the russian in the refinements and graces of polished life there seems to be something in the southern clime which ameliorates harshness of manners the grecian emperors perhaps in abandoning their palaces left also to their conquerors that suavity which has been transmitted even to our day the inviolable title of the polished greek in the year fifteen o three Ivan the Third lost his spouse, the Greek princess Sophia. Her death affected the aged monarch deeply, and seriously impaired his health. Twenty-five years had now elapsed since he received the young and beautiful princess as his bride, and during all these tumultuous years her genius and attraction had been the most brilliant ornament of his court. The infirmities of age pressed heavily upon the king, and it was manifest that his days could not much longer be prolonged. With much ceremony in the presence of his lords, he dictated his will, declaring his oldest son, Vassili, to be his successor as monarch, and assigning to all his younger children rich possessions. The passion for the aggrandizement of Russia still glowed strongly in his bosom, even in the hour of death. Vasily, though twenty-five years of age, was as yet unmarried. He decided to select his spouse from the daughters of the Russian nobles, and fifteen hundred of the most beautiful belles of the kingdom were brought to the court that the prince from among them might make his selection the choice fell upon a maiden of exquisite beauty of tartar descent her father was an officer in the army a son of one of the chiefs of the horde the marriage was immediately consummated and all moscow was in the blaze of illumination rejoicing over the nuptials of the heir to the crown the decay of the aged monarch however advanced day by day his death, at last, was quite sudden in the night of the 27th of October, 1505, at the age of sixty-six years and nine months, and at the close of a reign of forty-three years and a half. Ivan the Third will, through all ages, retain the rank of one of the most illustrious of the sovereigns of Russia. The excellencies of his character and the length of his reign combined in enabling him to give an abiding direction to the career of his country. He made his appearance on the political stage just in the time when a new system of government, favorable to the power of the sovereigns of Europe, was rising upon the ruins of feudalism the royal authority was gaining rapidly in england and in france spain freed from the domination of the moors had just become a power of the first rank the fleets of portugal were whitening the most distant seas conferring upon the energetic kingdom wonderful wealth and power italy though divided exulted in her fleet her maritime wealth and her elevation above all other nations in the arts the sciences and the intrigues of politics frederick the fourth an emperor of germany an inefficient apathetic man was unable to restore repose to the empire distracted by civil war his energetic son maximilian was already meditating that political change which should give new strength to the monarch, and which finally raised the House of Austria to the highest point of earthly grandeur. Hungary, Bohemia, and Poland, governed by near relatives, might almost be considered as a single power, and they were, as by instinct, allied with Austria in endeavours to resist the encroachment of the Turks inventions and discoveries of the greatest importance were made in the world during the reign of Ivan the third gutenberg and faust in strasburg invented the art of printing christopher columbus discovered the new world until then the productions of india reached central europe through persia the caspian sea and the sea of azov on the twentieth of november 1497, Vasco de Gama doubled the Cape of Good Hope, thus opening a new route to the Indies, and adding immeasurably to the enterprise and wealth of the world. A new epoch seemed to dawn upon mankind, favorable at least to the tranquility of nations, the progress of civilization, and the strength of governments. Thus far, Russia, in her remote seclusion had taken no part in the politics of europe it was not until the reign of ivan the third that this great northern empire emerged from that state of chaos in which she had neither possessed definiteness of form nor assured existence ivan the third found his nation in subjection to the tartars He threw off the yoke, became one of the most illustrious monarchs in Europe, commanding respect throughout Christendom. He took his position by the side of emperors and sultans, and by the native energies of his mind. Unenlightened by study, he gave the wisest precepts for the internal and the external government of his realms. But he was a rude, stern man the legitimate growth of those savage times. It is recorded that a single angry look from him would make any woman faint, that at the table the nobles trembled before him, not daring to utter a word. Vasily now ascended the throne, and with great energy carried out the principles established by his father. The first important measure of the new monarch was to fit out an expedition against the still powerful but vagabond horde at Kazan, on the Volga, to punish them for some acts of insubordination. A powerful armament descended the Volga in barges. The infantry landed near Kazan on the 22nd of May 1506. The Tartars, with a numerous array of cavalry, were ready to receive their assailants and fell upon them with such impetuosity and courage that the Russians were overpowered and driven back with much slaughter to their boats. They consequently retreated to await the arrival of the cavalry. The Tartars, imagining that the foe utterly discomfited it, had fled back to Moscow, surrendered themselves to excessive joy. A month passed away and on the 22nd of June an immense assemblage of uncounted thousands of Tartars were gathered in festivity on the plains of Arsk, which spread around their capital city. More than a thousand tents were spread upon the field, merchants from all parts were gathered there displaying their goods, and a scene of festivity and splendor was exhibited, such as modern civilization has never paralleled. Suddenly the Russian army, horse and infantry, were seen upon the plain, as if they had dropped from the clouds. They rushed upon the encampment, cutting down the terrified multitude, with awful butchery and trampling them beneath their horses' feet. The fugitives, in dismay, sought to regain the city, crushing each other in their flight, and in the desperate endeavor to crowd in at the gates and along the narrow streets the russians exhausted by their victory and lured by the luxuries which filled the tents instead of taking the city by storm as in the confusion they probably could have done surrendered themselves to the pillage and the voluptuous indulgence they found the tents filled with food liquors of all kinds and a great quantity of precious commodities and forgetting that they were in the presence of an enemy they plunged into the wildest excesses of festivity and wassail the disgraceful carousal was briefly terminated during the night but renewed with an additional zest in the morning the songs and the shouts of the drunken soldiers were heard in the streets of kazan and from the battlements the tartars beheld these orgies equalling the most frantic revels of pagan bacchanals the tartar khan from the top of a bastion watched the spectacle and perceiving the negligence of his enemies prepared for a surprise and for vengeance on the twenty-fifth of june just at the dawn of day The gates were thrown open, and twenty thousand horsemen and thirty thousand infantry precipitated themselves with frightful yells upon the Russians, stupefied with sleep and wine. Though the Russians exceeded the Tartars two to one, yet they fled towards their boats like a flock of sheep, without order and without arms the plain was speedily strewn with their dead bodies and crimsoned with their blood. Too much terrified to think even of resistance, they clambered into their barges, cut the cables, and pushed out into the stream. But for the valor of the Russian cavalry, all would have been destroyed. In the deepest humiliation, the fugitives returned to Moscow. Vasily resolved upon another expedition which should inflict signalled vengeance upon the horde, but while he was making his preparations, the Khan, terrified in view of the storm which was gathering, sent an embassage to Moscow, imploring pardon and peace, offering to deliver up all the prisoners, and to take a new oath of homage to the Grand Prince. Vasily, who was just on the eve of war with Poland, with alacrity, accepted these concessions. The King of Poland had heard, with much joy, of the death of Ivan Third, whose energetic arm he had greatly feared, and he now hoped to take advantage of the youth and inexperience of Vasily. A harassing warfare was commenced between Russia and Poland, which raged for several years. Peace was finally made, Russia extorting from Poland several important provinces. In the year 1514, Vasily, entering into a treaty with Maximilian, the Emperor of Germany, laid aside the title of Grand Prince and assumed for himself that of Emperor, which was Kaiser in the German language and Tsar in the Russian with great energy vasili pushed the work of concentrating and extending his empire every year strengthening his power over the distant principalities the second the turkish sultan the victim of a conspiracy was dethroned by his son selim vasili wishing for the sake of commerce to maintain friendly relations with turkey sent an ambassador to the new sultan. The ambassador, Alexeyev, was authorized to make all proper protestations of friendship, but to be very cautious not to compromise the dignity of his sovereign. He was instructed not to prostrate himself before the sultan, as was the Oriental custom, but merely to offer his hands. He was to convey rich presents to Selim, with a letter from the Russian court, but was by no means to inquire for the health of the Sultan, unless the Sultan should first inquire for the health of the Emperor. Notwithstanding these chilling punctilios, Selim received the Russian ambassador with much cordiality, and sent back with him a Turkish ambassador to the court of Moscow nine months from august to may were occupied in the weary journey while traversing the vast deserts of Verinage, their horses exhausted and starving sank beneath them and they were obliged to toil along for weary leagues on foot suffering from the want both of food and water they nearly perished before reaching the frontiers of rizan but here they found horses and retinue awaiting them sent by vassili upon their arrival at moscow the turkish ambassador was received with great enthusiasm it was deemed an honor as yet unparalleled in russia that the terrible conquerors of constantinople before whose arms all christendom was trembling should send an ambassador fifteen hundred miles to moscow seek the alliance of the Emperor. The Turkish envoy was received with great magnificence by Vasily, seated upon his throne and surrounded by his nobles clad in robes of the most costly furs. The ambassador, Theodoric Kamal, a Greek by birth, with the courtesy of the polished Greek, kneeling kissed the hand of the Emperor presented him the letter of his master the sultan beautifully written upon parchment in arabic letters and assured the emperor of the wish of the sultan to live with him in eternal friendship but the turk loud in protestations was not disposed to alliance it was evident that the office of a spy constituted the most important part of the mission of kamal This ambassador had but just left the court of Moscow when another appeared, from the Emperor Maximilian of Germany. The message with which the Baron Heberstein was commissioned from the court of Vienna to the court of Moscow is sufficiently important to be recorded. "'Ought not sovereigns,' said the ambassador to seek the glory of religion and the happiness of their subjects such are the principles which have ever guided the emperor if he has waged war it has never been from the love of false glory nor to seize the territories of others but to punish those who have dared to provoke him despising danger he has been seen in battle exposing himself like the humblest soldier and gaining victories against superior forces, because the Almighty lends his arm to aid the virtuous. The Emperor of Germany is now reposing in the bosom of tranquillity. The Pope and all the princes of Italy have become his allies. Spain, Naples, Sicily, and twenty-six other realms recognize his grandson, Charles V for their legitimate and hereditary monarch. The King of Portugal is attached to him by the ties of relationship, and the King of England by the bonds of sincere friendship. The sovereigns of Denmark and Hungary have married the granddaughters of Maximilian, and the King of Poland testifies to unbounded confidence in him. I will not speak of your majesty, for the Emperor of Russia well knows how to appreciate the sentiments of the Emperor of Germany. The King of France and the Republic of Venice, influenced by selfish interests and disregarding the prosperity of Christianity, have taken no part in this fraternal alliance of all the rest of Europe, but they are now beginning to manifest a love for peace, and I have just learned that a treaty is about to be concluded with them also let any one now cast a glance over the world and he will see but one christian prince who is not attached to the emperor maximilian either by ties of friendship or affection all christian europe is in the profound peace excepting russia and poland maximilian has sent me to your majesty illustrious monarch to entreat you to restore repose to Christianity and to your states. Peace causes empires to flourish. War destroys their resources and hastens their downfall. Who can be sure of victory? Fortune often frustrates the wisest plans. Thus far I have spoken in the name of my master. I wish now to add that on my journey... I have been informed by the Turkish ambassador himself that the Sultan has just captured Damascus, Jerusalem, and all Egypt. A traveller worthy of credence has confirmed this deplorable intelligence. If, before these events, the power of the Sultan inspired us with just fear, ought not this success of his arms to augment our apprehensions? Russia and Poland had long been engaged in a bloody frontier war, each endeavouring to wrest provinces from the other. But Russia was steadily on the advance. The embassage of Maximilian was not productive of peace. On the contrary, Vasily immediately sent an ambassador to Vienna to endeavour to secure the aid of Austria in his war with Poland. Maximilian received the envoy with very extraordinary marks of favor. He was invited to sit in the presence of the emperor with his hat upon his head, and whenever the ambassador during the conference mentioned the name of the Russian emperor, Maximilian uncovered his head in token of respect. The great object of Maximilian's ambition was to arm all Europe against the Turks, And he was exceedingly anxious to secure the cooperation of a power so energetic as that of Russia had now proved herself to be. Even then, with consummate foresight, he wrote, The integrity of Poland is indispensable to the general interests of Europe. The grandeur of Russia is becoming dangerous. Maximilian soon sent another ambassador to Moscow who very forcibly described the conquest made by the turks in europe asia and africa from the thracian bosphorus to the sands of egypt and from the mountains of caucasia to venice he spoke of the melancholy captivity of the greek church which was the mother of russian christianity of the profanation of the holy sepulchre of nazareth Bethlehem and Sinai, which had fallen under the domination of the Turk. He suggested that the Turks, in possession of the Tauride, as the country upon the north shore of the Black Sea, bounded by the Dnieper and the Sea of Azov, was then called, threatened the independence of Russia herself, that Vasily had everything to fear from the ferocity, the perfidy and the success of selim who stained with the blood of his father and his three brothers dared to assume the title of master of the world he entreated vasili as one of the most powerful of the christian princes to follow the banner of jesus christ and to cease to make war upon poland thus exhausting the christian powers maximilian died before his ambassador returned and thus these negotiations were interrupted but russia was then all engrossed with the desire of obtaining provinces from poland turkey was too formidable a foe to think of assailing and the idea at that time of wresting any territory from turkey was preposterous all europe combined could only hope to check any further advance of the Moslem cemeteres. Influenced by these considerations, Vasily sent another ambassador to Constantinople to propose a treaty with Selim, which might aid Russia in the strife with her hereditary rival. The Sultan, glad of any opportunity to weaken the Christian powers, ordered his pashas to harass poland in every possible way on the south thus enabling russia more easily to assail the distracted kingdom on the north the king of poland sigismond was in consternation poland was united with rome in religion the pope leo x anxious to secure the cooperation of both poland and russia against the turks who were the great foe christianity had most to dread proposed that the king of poland a renowned warrior should be entrusted with the supreme command of the christian armies and adroitly suggested to vasily that constantinople was the legitimate heritage of a russian monarch who was the descendant of a Grecian princess, that it was sound policy for him to turn his attention to Turkey. For Poland, being a weaker power, and combined of two discordant elements, the original Poland and Lithuania would of necessity be gradually absorbed by the growth of Russia. Vassili hated the Pope, because he had ordered te Deums in Rome, in celebration of a victory which the poles had obtained over the russians and had called the russians heretics but still the bait the pope presented was too alluring not to be caught at in the labyrinthine mazes of politics however there were obstacles to the development of this policy which years only could remove upon the death of maximilian charles v of spain ascended the throne of the german empire and established a power the most formidable that had been known in europe for several hundred years that is since the age of charlemagne vasili was in the midst of these plans of aggrandizement when death came with its unexpected summons he was in the fifty-fourth year of his age with mental and physical vigor unimpaired a small pimple appeared on his left thigh not larger than the head of a pin but from its commencement attended with excruciating pain it soon resolved itself into a malignant ulcer which rapidly exhausted all the vital energies the dying king was exceedingly anxious to prepare himself to stand before the judgment seat of God. He spent days and nights in prayer, gave most affectionate exhortations to all around him to live for heaven, assume monastic robes, resolving that, should he recover, he would devote himself exclusively to the service of God. It was midnight, the third of December, 1533. The king had just partaken of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Suddenly his tongue was paralyzed, his eyes fixed, his hands dropped by his side, and the metropolitan bishop who had been administering the last rites of religion exclaimed, It is all over. The king is dead. End of chapter 11